have been listening to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at incompetech.com. You can contact the show by voicemail at area code 734-623-0832. You can also contact the show through voicemail at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. And all links pertaining to the show can be found at Linktree. That's linktr.com. So until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. So Welcome to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast, an introspective look at video gaming from the classic era to the modern day. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, what's going on out there? Brian here, and this is episode number 70 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Okay, uh, just to get you guys up to speed, since I posted episode 69, which was about almost two weeks ago now, uh, let's see, well, my birthday is come and gone, I'm officially 55 years old, you know, happy birthday to me, um, uh, that day was rather hectic and stressful for a bunch of different reasons, and I just kind of put it out of my head, you know. This is one of those things. Um, I did uh, get a happy belated birthday dinner this evening. Uh, time check, uh, Sunday, December 10th, uh, 1027 p.m., um, which was a fantastic um, broccoli and beef dish. I mean, it was absolutely wonderful. And homemade uh, egg rolls on top of it. You know, I was like, I could not have been happier because of that. I mean, it was a wonderful thing. So, yeah, I mean, I stuffed my face <laughs> prodigiously, shall we say. Um, let's see. Uh, I did my shift at the arcade last night. I'm still working on uh, Tempest, but, yeah, my sticking point now is the yellow levels. And I still haven't gotten past the first half of the yellow levels. Um... My highest score to date is, what, 385,000 or something like that? 387? Something like that. Um, of course, the we've been having issues with that machine, so our tech has been working on it and resetting things and, you know, that kind of thing. And it works fine. I think it's a heat issue somehow, and not only that... Tempest machines have a notorious reputation for being fragile in the first place, so you know, it, it'll just be sitting there in attract mode or, you know, somebody will play it maybe once an hour and it'll be fine, but then I come back around when I do my little, you know, walk through the arcade to you know, see if anybody's having any problems, and if kids or other people start uh, pinball games and then they just abandon them mid-game, then I go and I either launch the ball to start the last ball or I just uh, re you know turn off and restart the machine. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, pick up any trash, you know, or anything else that might be going on. And I'll walk by the Tempest machine and the graphics... Uh, for the uh, high score 
and other things, they just start freaking out. It's really weird. I don't know exactly what that is. I'm pretty sure our tech has a good idea of it, but um, I spoke to him about that about a month ago, and he basically said until the actual gameplay screen is crapping out, he's not going to do very much about it because he's probably going to have to pull the machine off the floor in order to fix it. Um, speaking of that, we did get a new uh, machine uh, on the floor. Um, I think they got. I think they put that in on like Wednesday or something. Um, I forget. I don't know what the game is called. I mean, it's a Japanese import. I'll have to look more into it. I should have taken a picture of it and put it on Instagram and Facebook and all that other stuff, but I didn't think of it. It was a rather busy night that night. Um, the place was absolutely jumping when I got in there at 5 o'clock to get my gaming in, and it was like that from uh, the time I walked in until probably about 9 o'clock when it started slowing down. Um, but it was a really, it was a good night, and that's all there is to it, you know. Um, my, my friend, uh, Kelly, uh, came by, he's, like, on a quest to get a million points on Stargate, you know, his highest score today is, like, 700,000, and now he's starting to play Robotron, and he's slowly getting better, he's getting up around... On average, like about three hundred thousand. His highest score to date is like four hundred and seventy-three, which is actually pretty good. That was where I was about what two years ago, two and a half years ago, when I started playing the game again. You know, and all it just takes is just constant practice. I mean, Kelly's a video game head in the truest sense of the word. Like I said, he plays uh, Stargate and Defender almost exclusively. Although I've seen him playing other other games you know i've seen him play galaga and whatnot you know he was telling he was asking me one day he's like what's your high score in galaga i said like 1.7 million he's like really i'm like yeah <laughs> and that's only because i tried to straight nine the machine and i messed up on the math and and i said okay let me see how far i can go with it and you know 1.7 million was the answer that day um and yeah we he's like um when i was uh playing games uh, before I clocked in for my shift, you know, he was watching me play Robotron and whatnot, and you know, he was pretty complimentary of my gameplay, and I'm like, you know, I'm just an average player. I mean, I'm still, you know, trying to get my average up to about what, close to a million points. So, you know, I consider myself passable at that. I told him about Greg Hansen, who's like one of the true experts at the game, and then we talked about this one guy whose name I cannot remember. Uh, he put up videos on uh, YouTube about, um, you know, what he does with Robotron, you know, games of Robotron. The guy can do 10 million points and turn the machine over without very much difficulty, it seems. Um, I've picked up some tips from that guy, and it's helped me improve my scores, which has led directly to me getting, like, a million you know, a million three, a million four, something like that, you know, and now Kelly's watching that stuff, and, you know, it's good to just, it's good to talk to him, because he's a really nice guy, and, you know, he's pretty much, we're the same age, and we just go, you know, we just have fun at the arcade and play our games, and, you know, that kind of thing. It's good to just see, like, 
um, a video game player from that era, which was, you know, the early to mid 80s, you know, you know, just going into an arcade, playing games, you know, still reliving his youth a little bit. It's kind of fun to watch. It's, you know, he's a good guy to boot. So, yeah, I'm glad to know him. Um, so, yeah, that that, w- that happened Saturday. Um, and then today, it was just the usual stuff, you know, taking care of my son and then getting some rest because I needed it because I didn't go to bed uh, last night until, like, 5 in the morning. <laughs> I just couldn't sleep no matter what. So, yeah, um, that's kind of how it is. You know, I'm having a massive, massive uh, struggle with... Uh, uh, insomnia. It's not fun. It's not pretty to watch. Let me tell you that. So, yeah. Um, so that's pretty much what's going on right now. Um, I'm not going to be doing too much for the holidays because uh, my pay from the state of Michigan is all, is kind of screwed up and I have to make sure all the bills are paid before I do anything else. And right now it's like I'm not going to be getting paid from one of my home care jobs until probably the close to the end of the month. And I'm just hoping that I have my ducks in a row as far as the bills go. But we'll see. I get paid uh, Friday from my uh, my first home care gig and from my main job. So I think I should be able to get the bills paid and, you know, uh, get food on the table and that kind of stuff. So. Hopefully, we'll see. I've got my fingers crossed, because, yeah, it's going to be a rather interesting month, even without uh, Christmas right around the corner. Okay, uh, I checked emails and voicemails, uh, and there's nothing out there. Once again, uh, if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, as long as you're nice about it, you know, constructive constructive criticism does a lot more for me than somebody just saying, oh, your podcast sucks, man. Because God only knows there have been a couple of those guys over the years. Um, but yeah, if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, you have any games that you would like me to cover that I haven't covered in the previous 69 episodes, get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Also, there is a phone number for voicemails. That number is area code 734-623-0832. Also, I have social media going. Uh, Let's see if I can do this off the top of my head. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter slash X, Tumblr, Blue Sky, Threads, um, Kick, uh, Twitch, of course, because I just started streaming a couple of months ago. So I've got all that going. And rather than waste time, I just decided not to be such a noob and I got onto Linktree which gives you links to all that stuff including the homepage of the podcast which is on uh, Spotify uh, for podcasters formerly known as Anchor so to get all that information you go to linktr.ee slash Brian. everything's right there uh, and all the ways to get a hold of me and ways to get a hold of the show so if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, anything you want to talk about in the world of video gaming, hey, hit me up. We'll talk about it, see where it goes. Okay, so with all that out of the way, let's get on to the show. I've got three segments, and I was surprised to find some information for one, but let's get right on to it, and let's start with Arcade Review. 
arcade review, Retro Electric Arcade, Lowell, Michigan. Okay, when it comes to arcades, as you guys all know, I do this with uh, through five criteria. Location, selection, ambiance, functionality, and value. Uh, location is pretty self-explanatory. Where is it? Is it easy to get to? Is there plenty of parking? That kind of thing. Uh, selection, that's self-explanatory too. How many machines do they have? Um, what's the cross-section look like? Um, like I said, uh, I've rated some arcades with like about 60 to 75 machines. I mean, I even have it broken down uh, into different, you know, the, the ratings from like 5 to 10. I have it broken down into, um, uh, into, uh, you know, what I, you know, more or less base, what I would more or less base an arcade off of. Um, let's see, like the base rating of five, that's usually where I start. Uh, the number of machines present in an arcade, uh, usually ranges from 25 to 30. That's like, uh, Pinball Classic Arcade and, uh, Lafayette Plaza Arcade back in my uh, youth. 5.5, that's 30 to 35 machines. Florida Mall Arcade, Marvin's, uh, Marvin's Marvelous uh, Mechanical Museum, 1-Up Arcade Bar, Off-World Arcade in Detroit. 6, that would be 35 to 40. Rocky's Replay back in the day in uh, Orlando, Florida, and also the Church Street Station Arcade. Uh, 6.5, 40 to 45, that would be the Fashion Square Mall. Uh, seven, 45 to 50. That's Arnie's place uh, back in uh, Westport, Connecticut. Uh, 7.5, uh, 50 to 60. Uh, Trumbull Mall Arcade, Connecticut Pulse Mall Arcade, The Fun Machine, Draftcade, those. Uh, rating of eight, 60 to 75. That's a free play pinball arcade up in uh, Frazier and Barcade in Detroit. Uh, 8.5, that's 75 to 100. That would be Spanky's uh, back in the day. Uh, 9 would be 100 to 150. That's the arcade in Brighton, uh, Milford Rec also. Uh, 9.5 is 150 to 200, and a uh, rating of 10 is 200 or more. And there's only three places that I've been to that have 200 or more machines. One is Galloping Ghost, another's Underground Retrocade, and the third is Fun Spot. So those three would get the 10 rating, although some could have like a nine or a 9.5, but if their cross section is really good, like they have pretty much every decade represented in their collection, they would get bonus points for me. Okay, uh, ambiance. Uh, let's see, that's more of the things uh, present in an arcade other than the machines. Uh, is there art or pictures? Um, or is there music playing? You know, and things like that. Also, this is where the... Um, I should put it under functionality, but I don't. Um, what is the staff like? Are they uh, attentive to if you have any issues? Or, you know, or do they just not care? Um, are they, you know, walking the floor every so often to, you know, see if there are any issues going on or if there's some things they need to do or are they just sitting behind the counter on their phone? <laughs> and the funny part is, is that in my job at the arcade at Brighton, I do both. So yeah, you know, I can't 
throw stones too much. You know what I'm saying? And finally, of uh, oh, excuse me, not finally. Uh, next one is functionality. How do the games look? Do they work well? Uh, are the controls messed up? Are the screens messed up? Uh, that kind of thing. Um, usually, um, I would dock a couple. Of, I would dock places if their machines are like really crappy looking. But I stopped doing that after I talked to Carl at Retro Electric. Um, he basically said to me straight up that he likes his machines to have patina, meaning that you know he you know wants them to show their age and battle scars and rather than being in like pristine collector's uh you know collector's um condition you know what i'm saying and finally there's value um okay does the place run on quarters uh do they run on cards do they are they free play do they run on tokens uh how much does it cost to play the games um and things things along that nature um, and, and are there other things in the place aside from the video games that you know you could possibly spend their mo- spend your money on? Is it attached to a bar or a restaurant? Uh, do they sell snacks and drinks? Things like that. And of course, the more things that are directly connected to the arcade in question, the higher the value score goes up. So yeah, you and all these ratings go from 1 to 10 with half points coming into play as you heard. Um, I basically uh, rate each criteria uh, then I add it all up and I divide it by 5 which is the number of criteria for a review and I come up with a total score. So without further ado, let's get right to this. Alright, Retro Electric Arcade. Location, I give it a 6. Uh, I originally thought that the place was a lot closer to me, so imagine my surprise when I when I planned out my visit that it's it's in Lowell, which is a town just east of Grand Rapids, Michigan, about two hours from me. Uh, fortunately, I knew the area because of a previous job, so it wasn't as big of a deal. It's on uh, Michigan State Road 21, right next door to a movie theater and a small shopping plaza. So it gets a couple of bonus points there like a bonus half point or a bonus full point for that. Uh, it's easy to get to if you live in the area. Selection, I give it an 8.5. At the time of my visit, Carl only had 28 games in the place, but that was supplemented by the board games on the tables uh, down the main uh, area and uh, those on old school console TVs. Since then, he has steadily put in more machines and console games. As of this recording, he has 45 arcade machines, 13 pinball machines, and has a a Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Nintendo 64, PlayStation 2, Sega Genesis, Atari 2600, Nintendo Game & Watch, and a foosball table in the area that he lovingly calls Mom's Basement. So there's truly something for everyone here, simply a great cross-section of games, which is why I rate it so high. If he had more machines, even though I'm willing to bet he's having floor space issues now, uh, it would rate even higher. Okay, ambiance. I give that a straight up 10. Uh, this place has the best ambi- ambiance of any arcade I have ever been to, past or present. 
If I didn't cap the ratings at 10, it would probably score an 11 or an 11.5. From the old school figurines and games for sale to the glorious vinyl mural of old school cassettes, VHS tapes, and Atari 2600 cartridges on the back wall to the classic album murals and covers also on the walls and even in the bathroom to the area called Mom's Basement where you can sit and play console games, I was tripping out pretty hard when I first came here. This place is a big love letter to the 80s, which is a beautiful thing in my book. Okay, functionality, 7.5. The games worked fairly well when I was here. Uh, Full disclosure, that was January of 21, if I'm not mistaken. Either 21 or 22, I can't remember now. I'd have to look at my notes. Um, Carl prefers that his machines have patina, like I said, showing their history through the scratches, cigarette burns, and scars, and I can't really disagree with him. Uh, He does his best to keep the games running correctly, though when I was there, there were a couple of games that weren't quite up to snuff. I'd bet dollars to donuts that Carl's fix it by now, though. And finally, value, I give it a 9.5. I was flat out shocked that you could play all day for just $12 when I went there, and it's only raised the price for unlimited play to $15. That's surprisingly inexpensive considering all you get for that. Carl could easily charge $20, even $25, and be completely justified in doing it, but he went the other way. Uh, He's also included prices of $9 for an hour of play and $12 for two. Add to this that he sells old school figurines, snacks, drinks, game consoles, games, and uh, VHS tapes. That's the newest thing he's been doing. Um, He has like this like little corner in the front which is all like old school videotapes and he's done it up like a uh, old school... um, video rental store from like the 80s or 90s i mean this guy wow (laughs) just what what this guy comes up with just flat out amazes me sometimes uh let's see uh let's see you could easily drop a hundred dollars in this place and get real and true value for your money saying that you get bang for your buck here is a little bit of an understatement and that's the truth um the only thing that could make it even better is if he had like you know a an attached uh like restaurant or bar then i'd give it a straight 10 but that's uh, 9.5 is probably one of the highest value ratings i've ever given any arcade past or present so there it is um you add all that up you divide it out by five and you get a total score of 8.3 The only thing that I could even have an issue with is the location, but considering it's only 20 miles east of Grand Rapids, I can't quibble too much about it. The other is the size of the place, but to his credit, Carl's makes every uh, use of every square inch of it. The value is excellent and has only gotten better since I went there. I'm planning to go back, by the way, probably in January or February. We'll see. Carl and his wife Nicole are good people, and he continues to put new games and pinball machines in one by one. He cares a lot, and it shows by the level of love he puts into this place. If you're a child of the 70s and 80s like me, it's worth the tri- it's worth the trip for the nostalgia and ambiance alone, never mind the great selection of games. And that's my review for Retro Electric. I mean, yeah, I'm gushing about it, but I think the place is just that good. You know, <laughs> like I've like I've said, you know, people ask me every so often about uh, arcades in the area, and I give them the rundown of all the places I've been in Metro Detroit, in Ohio, over in Chicago, things like that. 
and when I get to this place, yeah, I'm like the only thing that would that's holding it back from being the absolute best arcade in the state of Michigan is just the number of games. I mean, I know I work for the arcade in Brighton, but to be fair and honest about it, I was talking positively about the arcade in Brighton before I became an employee there. <laughs> Go back into where I had my review of the arcade in Brighton. You know, that was long before I became an employee of the place. The only thing that could even, that, like I said, the only thing holding Retro Electric back is just the number of games. Because he's got only, what, a total of 60, a little less than 60 arcade games? But he supplemented that with uh, Mom's Basement, which is a fantastic move because now you have uh, you don't just have the pinball machines and the arcade games now you have that and that and that's a genius way of giving people more for their money and that's just how I feel about it um, anyway if you've been to Retro Electric and you've got feelings and opinions and thoughts on it positive, negative, indifferent hey, talk to me about it arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com all right then, with that out of the way, let's move on to Are You Experienced? I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Hobie, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying red arse to my heather chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. like you believe. We're not too old for this shit. Yeah. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid cookie. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced, Dragon's Lair? Yeah, this is <laughs> one of the classics. As much as people don't want to talk, don't want to give it its props these days, because it's a video game on a rail, but what are you going to do? You know, in 1983, when this came out, yeah, it was, it was the game to be, it was the game to have, or not game to have, it was the game to play, you know, so let's get right on to it, uh, let's see, uh, pulling information from Wikipedia, as always, okay, uh, Dragon's Lair is an interactive film laserdisc video game developed by Advanced Microcomputer Systems and published by Cinematronics in 1983, as the first game in the Dragon's Lair series. In the game, the protagonist Dirk the Daring is a knight attempting to rescue Princess Daphne from the evil dragon Singe, who has locked the princess in the foul wizard Mordrock's castle. It features animation by the ex-density animator Don Bluth. Most other games of the era represented the character as a sprite, which consisted of a series of pixels displayed in succession. Due to hardware limitations of the era, Artists were greatly restricted in the detail they could achieve by using that technique. The resolution, frame rate, and the number of frames were severely constrained. Dragon's Lair overcame those limitations by tapping into the vast storage potential of the Laserdisc, but imposed other limitation, limitations on the actual gameplay. The success of the game sparked numerous home ports, sequels, and related games. In the 21st century, it has been repackaged in a number of formats as a retro or historic game. Yes, it's definitely historic. <laughs> For a bunch of reasons. Okay, let's go to the gameplay. 
The game is on rails, meaning the narrative is predetermined and the player has very limited influence on its progression. The game consists of almost entirely animated cutscenes. The player does not control the character's actions directly, but controls his reflexes with actions determined by selecting a direction or pressing a button in order to clear each quick time event with different full motion video segments showing the outcomes. The game consists of a sequence of challenges played in a random order. Some scenes are played more than once before reaching the end, some of which are flipped or mirrored such that the opposite actions for example, left instead of right, are required. Okay, the plot. The attract mode of the game displays various short vignettes of gameplay accompanied by the following narration. <clears throat> I have to do it in his voice, so forgive me. Dragon's Lair, the fantasy adventure where you become a valiant knight on a quest to rescue the fair princess from the clutches of an evil dragon. You control the actions of a daring adventurer, finding his way through the castle of a dark wizard who has enchanted it with treacherous monsters and obstacles. In the mysterious caverns below the castle, your odyssey continues as against the awesome forces that oppose your efforts to reach the dragon's lair. Lead on, adventurer. Your quest awaits. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't. Re I just couldn't resist doing that. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Um... Uh, let's see, comedic aspects of the game including include bizarre-looking creatures and humorous death scenes and the portrayal of the player as a clumsy, easily scared, and reluctant hero. Okay, let's move on to the development. Dragon's Lair began a, as a concept by Rick Dyer, president of Advanced Microcomputer Systems, which later became RDI Video Systems. A team of game designers created the characters and locations, then choreographed Dirk's movements as he encountered the monsters and obstacles in the castle. The art department at AMS created storyboards for each episode as a guide for the final animation. Dyer was inspired by the text game Adventure. Uh, this, gave, this game gave rise to the invention he dubbed the Fantasy Machine. This device went through many incarnations from a rudimentary computer using paper tape with illustrations and text to a system that manipulated a video disc containing mostly still images and narration. The game it played was a graphic adventure, The Secrets of the Lost Woods. The game's concept as an interactive movie Laserdisc game was inspired by Sega's Astron Belt, which Dyer saw at the 1982 AMOA show. <clears throat> Attempts to market the fantasy machine have repeatedly failed. Allegedly, an, an ideal toy company representative walked out in the middle of one presentation. Dyer's inspiration allegedly came during his viewing of The Secret of Nim, whereby he realized he needed quality animation and an action script to bring excitement to his game. He elected to take a reserved but unscripted location from Secrets of the Lost Woods, known as The Dragon's Lair. The game was animated by veteran Disney animator and the Secret of Nim director Don Bluth and his studio. The game had a development budget of $3 million US and took seven months to complete. Since the studio could not afford to hire any models, the animators used photos from Playboy magazines for inspiration for the character Princess Daphne. Oh, that absolutely figures. <laughs> Now, that's the first time I've read that. I thought I knew pretty much almost everything about Dragon's Lair, but that that is just, that doesn't surprise me at all, considering how, let's, shall we say, um, 
perfectly formed Princess Daphne was, and we'll just leave it at that. Uh, the animators also used their own voices for all the characters instead of hiring voice actors in order to keep costs down, although it does feature one professional voice actor, Michael Rye, as the narrator in the attract sequence. And that's the... Uh, and that's the uh, the narration that I did in doing a rough imitation of his voice. <laughs> uh, let's see, Michael Rye was the animator in the attract sequence, and he was also the narrator for Space Age and Dragon Slayer 2 Time Warp. The voice of Princess Daphne was portrayed by Vera Lanfer, who was head of the cleanup department at the time. God, that's hilarious. I did know that part. Uh, Dirk the Daring's voice belonged to film editor, film editor Dan Molina, who went on later to perform the bubbling sound effects for another animated character, Fish Out of Water, from 2005's Disney film Chicken Little, which he also edited. Dirk shrieks or makes other noises on numerous occasions, but speaks words only once. First he mutters, uh-oh, when the platform begins to recede during the fire-swinging uh, sequence, and then exclaims, wow, when first entering the dragon's lair and seeing the slumbering princess Daphne. The music and many sound effects were scored and performed by Chris Stone at EFX Systems in Burbank. Brian Rusenko and Glenn Berkowitz were the recording engineers. The 43-second attract loop was recorded in a straight 18-hour session. Featured instruments, all keyboards, were the E-Mu emulator and memory Moog. Uh, the original Laserdisc players shipped with the game, which were Pioneer LDV-1000 or PR-7820, often failed. Although the players were of good quality, the game imposed unusually high strain. Laserdisc players were designed primarily for playing movies, in which the laser assembly would gradually move across the disc as the data was being read linearly. However, Dragon's Lair required seeking different animation sequences on the disc every few seconds. Indeed, less than a second in some cases, as dictated by gameplay. The high amount of seeking coupled with the length of time the unit was required to operate could result in failure of the Laserdisc player after a relatively short time. This was compounded by the game's popularity. As a result, the Laserdisc player often had to be repaired or replaced. The life of the original player's gas laser was about 650 hours, although later models had solid-state lasers with an estimated life of 50,000 hours. The spindle motor typically failed long before that. It is rare to find a Dragon's Lair game intact with the original player, and conversion kits have been developed so the units could use more modern players. The original USA 1983 game used a single-side NTSC Laserdisc player manufactured by Pioneer. The other side of the disc was metal-backed to prevent bending. Uh, this made the disc heavier than a typical Laserdisc, which accelerated the failure of the spindle bearings of the player motor, of course. Uh, the European versions of the game were manufactured by Atari under license and used single-side PAL discs manufactured by Philips and not metal-backed. A prototype made its debut at Chicago's Amusement Operators Expo in March of 1983. The complete Laserdisc and ROM sets of this preview demo version have not survived to this day. Well, that's a pity. Uh, the European arcade version of Dragon's Lair was licensed to Atari Ireland, as was Space Ace later. Uh, the cabinet design was therefore different from the Cinematronics version. The main differences were that the LED digital scoring panel was replaced with an on-screen scoring display appearing after each level. The Atari branding was present in various places on the machine. Marquee, coin slots, control panel, and speaker grill era. 
Of course, <laughs> it's Atari. And the machines uh, featured the cone LED player start button used extensively on Atari machines. Although licensing for this region was exclusive to Atari, a number of Cinematronics machines were also available from suppliers, mostly via a gray import. The original Fantasy machine was later released as a prototype video game console known as Halcyon. Dirk the Daring also appeared in the 1993 Game Boy puzzle game Frankie, Joe, and Dirk on the tiles, with along with Frankie from Dr. Franken and Joe from Joe and Mac. Huh, I didn't know that. Cool. Alright, let's see. The reception. Dragon's Lair initially represented high hopes for the then-sagging arcade industry fronting a new wave of immersive laser disc video games. Uh, a quote from Newsweek captures the level of excitement displayed over the game. Quote, Dragon's Lair is this summer's hottest new toy, the first arcade in the United States with a movie-quality image to go along with the action. The game has been devouring kids' coins at top speed since it appeared in early July. Said Robert Romano, 10, who waited all day in the crush at Castle Park without getting to play, quote, it's the most awesome game I've ever seen in my life, end quote. Arcade operators at its release reported long lines, even though the game was the first video arcade game to cost 50 cents. That's true. That is very true. Uh, yeah, it cost two tokens at uh, Spanky's. Uh, let's see. Operators were also concerned, however, that players would figure out its unique predefined gameplay, leading them to, quote, get the hang of it and stop playing it, end quote. By July of 83, 1,000 machines had been distributed, and there were already a backlog of about 7,500. By the end of 1983, Electronic Games and Electronic Fun were rating Dragon's Lair as the number one video arcade game in the USA, while the arcade industry gave it recognition for helping turn around its 1983 financial slump. Dragon's Lair received recognition as the most influential game of 1983, to the point that regular computer graphics looked, quote, rather elementary compared to top quality animation, end quote. The game topped the monthly U.S. replay charts for upright arcade cabinets from September 1983 through November of 1983, and topped the U.S. Playmeter arcade charts for arcade locations such as Showbiz Pizza Place from September of 83 through January of 1984, and again in March of 1984. It was listed by Cashbox as America's third highest grossing arcade game of 1983 below Ms. Pac-Man and Pole Position. By February of 1984, Dragon's Lair was reported to have earned over $32 million, which is $94 million adjusted for inflation for Cinematronics. In Japan, Game Machine listed Dragon's Lair on their October 1st, 1984 issue as being the 11th most successful upright cockpit arcade unit of the month. One element of the game that was negatively received was the blackout time in between the loading of scenes, which Dyer promised would be eliminated by the forthcoming Space Ace and planned Dragon Slayer sequel. By the middle of 1984, however, after Space Ace and other similar games were released to little success, sentiment on the Dragon Slayer position in the industry had shifted, and it was being cited as a failure due to its expensive cost for a game that would quote-unquote lose popularity. Arcade owners were also displeased with the mechanical unreliability of the Laserdisc drive. In 1995, Flux Magazine rated the arcade version 47th on its top 100 video games, writing, quote, a somewhat frustrating movement timing factor, but still fun to play and watch, end quote. In 2001, 
GameSpy ranked Dragon's Lair as number 7 on the list of top 50 arcade games of all time. It was one of only three video games along with Pong and Pac-Man put in storage at the Smithsonian Institute. How about that? <laughs> That's That in itself should give you just a little bit of a you know, idea of its historic value. Uh, let's see. Let's go on to the... Let's go on to the ports. No, not the ports, I'm sorry. The uh, home versions. Uh, various home computer adaptations of Dragon's Lair were released during the 1980s and 1990s, but because of, at the time, high memory consumption due to the detailed animation of the games, not all scenes from the original game were included. Reviewers of the home computer versions differed widely in their appraisal of the game, with one Amiga magazine warning, awarding 92% due to the unprecedented audiovisual quality, while another magazine gave the same version only a score of 32% on the account of wooden gameplay. This led to uh, Escape from Sidge's Castle, a pseudo-sequel where Daphne is kidnapped at the moment of Dirk's vi victory by a shapeshifter, forcing him to venture further into the castle to save her again. The game was made up of unused scenes from the Laserdisc version, although some portions, such as the Lizard King and the Mud Men, were shortened. The 8-bit versions were created by Software Projects, while ReadySoft handled 16-bit versions. These were used video compression and new storage techniques, but came on multiple 5 and a quarter inch uh, and 3.5 inch floppy disks. In late 2002, to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the original arcade release, Digital Leisure produced a special DVD box set containing Dragon's Lair, Space Ace, and Dragon's Lair 2 Time Warp. All the scenes from the original arcade releases were included, and optionally, the player could select new scenes that were animated in 1983, but not included in any previous Dragon's Lair release. The games were also updated to include higher quality video, authentic scene order, and a new difficulty selection to make it more challenging. Digital Leisure worked with a small independent game developer, Derek Sweet, to release a CD-ROM 4-disc box set for Windows-based PCs. In late 2006, Digital Leisure released Dragon's Lair HD which featured an all-new high-definition transfer from the original negatives as opposed to just sourcing the Laserdisc. Uh, the original mon mono soundtrack has also been remastered into Dolby Digital 5.1 Sound on PCs that can support it, of course. On April 9, 2007, a Blu-ray version of Dragon's Lair was released. This used the same HD transfer as the mentioned PC release, uh, but went through a six-month process to clean and re remaster the image. Dragon's Lair Blu-ray is the first title to fully utilize BDJ technology. In 2013, Dragon's Lair was released on Steam via Steam Greenlight. This iteration of Dragon's Lair features the 720p remastered video, remastered game footage, and bonus content. I'm going to have to get that. Hopefully the cost isn't too high. Uh, let's see. Dragon's Lair led to the creation of numerous video game ports for home systems. Since some original sequences did not fit in the ports for those systems, they were re-released on a virtual sequel called Escape from Singe's Castle. Uh, let's see. A non-linear arcade interpretation of Dragon's Lair and Escape from Singe's Castle with elements of platform and puzzle was made by software projects for 8-bit machines in 1986. A side-scrolling cinematic platformer adaptation of the game was also made for the Nintendo Entertainment System titled Dragon's Lair. The Game Boy version, entitled Dragon's Lair The Legend, 
in particular has almost nothing to do with the Source game aside from Dirk as the protagonist, Mordrak as a villain, and saving Princess Daphne as the objective. In fact, the game is a port of a five-year-old ZX Spectrum game, wow, uh, called Roller Coaster, the result uh, being a platform game where Dirk has to negotiate a series of thinly disguised fairground rides. <laughs> wow. The later Game Boy Color version of the same name, however, is a relatively faithful rendition of the original game. Let's see, another platformer adaptation of the game was also made for the Super NES, also titled Dragon's Lair. The Dragon's Lair Deluxe Pack was released for home computers containing all the full motion videos for all three games. Though it contains all the video, including some scenes cut from the North American version of the game, the gameplay was reported as lackluster. ReadySoft ported and released Dragon's Lair for the Magic Macintosh computers for, on CD-ROM in 1994. A Sega CD version was also released. Interesting. Daphne, an emulator for Laserdisc-based games, can emulate the original 1983 version. Daphne requires the ROM files plus original Laserdisc to run. Alternatively, an MPEG-2 video stream and AUG Vorbis audio stream can be substituted for the Laserdisc. These streams can be generated from the original Laserdisc or from Digital Laser's 2002 DVD. In July 2010, the iOS version was released by Electronic Arts on Apple's App Store. The game's graphics have been cleaned up for the iPhone screen. In early 2019, Harmless Lion released Dragon's Lair under a license from Digital Leisure for the TI-99-4A home computer. Holy crap. Uh, it was released as a 128-megabyte cartridge playable on the stock console. Interesting. Uh, in March 2022, Brutal Deluxe, in celebrating their 30th anniversary, ported Dragon's Lair to the Apple II GS computer using resources from ReadySoft's Amiga, Atari ST, and PC-DOS versions from decades earlier. Wow. And they have a list of all the ports for Dragon's Lair. I mean, they have the original Arcade in 83, uh, the Coleco Adam in 1984. I barely remember that. Uh, let's see, Amstrad CPCs, the X Spectrum, Commodore 64, which I actually have, which is a weird game. <laughs> it's very weird. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see, so, uh, Escape from Sidge's Castle came out in 1987, then all the releases for the Amiga and DOS, Atari ST, Macintosh Plus slash SE, um, uh, that was in 1989 and 1990, the Nintendo Entertainment System version was in 90, uh, the 2GS version, they don't know when the release was, they, they want to say it was like, you know, somewhere around 90 or 91, uh, Game Boy... Uh, uh, was in 91 Super uh, Nintendo Sega CD 3DO those were all in 93 along with DOS uh, there was a uh, Sega Genesis game to be called that was called Dragon's Lair The Adventure Continues but never was released apparently Sega and Taito were going to uh, do that one uh, let's see uh, Macintosh and CDI in 94 Atari Jaguar CD in 95, Windows 95, uh, and Windows, yeah, Windows and Windows 95 and 97. Uh, let's see, you could play, in 1998, that's when you could play it on home DVD players and actually use the directional buttons on the remote control to actually play the game. I, I thought that, that kind of blew me away. 
uh, Windows 98 also, Game Boy Color in 2000, Windows XP, again in home uh, DVD players uh, under a, a 20th anniversary pack in 2002, uh, the GameCube remade as Dragon's Lair 3D, also the Xbox and Windows. Uh, let's see, 2003 for Windows XP for the 20th anniversary pack. 2004, which was PlayStation 2 and the GameCube, uh, released as uh, Dragon's Lair 3D Special Edition. Let's see, 2005 on the mo on mobile phones, 2006 on Windows XP uh, for high, you know, when in high def, uh, in high def video, uh, Blu-ray players, PlayStation 3 home HD DVD players, Xbox 360, and Windows again in 2007. Uh, let's see, the iPhone and uh, the Nintendo DSi in uh, 2009. The Wii, the iPad, the Nintendo DS on the PlayStation Network in 2010. Uh, the PSP, Android, and Nintendo 3DS in 2011. Wow. Uh, Xbox Live Arcade, uh, Windows again uh, being... Uh, being put on Steam uh, on the Mac in uh, 2013. Uh, let's see, the Linux and PlayStation 4 in 2017 released as the Dragon's Lair Trilogy. Nintendo Switch, the TI-99, as was said, and the Xbox One in 2019. And again, the Apple IIgs in 2022. So that's all of it. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, that's, that's Dragon's Lair. Let's move right on to my experiences with it. <clears> okay. <throat> Spanky's was the only arcade in my area that had Dragon's Lair. Uh, even though the News Corner got a machine, and I think the year was 1985. I think it was right around there. I'm a huge Don Bluth fan, and I was a fan of his starting with the Disney movies he was an animator for all the way through The Secret of Nim. So when I found out that it was indeed him who was in charge of the art for the game, it just made me like the game more. The art was beautiful and disturbing at times, and the deaths that Dirk would suffer were also gruesome. Uh, the history of the game has been told and retold through the years as I just did, but I remember the craze this game caused if only for a short time as more and more people either beat it or gave up on it. I remember the high score battles that my friend Mark and several other guys would wage on this machine, even there, if it, there wasn't a way to save them. Uh, I've watched Mark tear through this game on two tokens and losing no lives. I've told the story several, several times about having a perfect game going at the news corner, only to be pulled away from it uh, two-thirds of the way through the game. Uh, it was fun, although some people even back in 83 and 84 called it predictable. Uh, it was also a test of your memorization skills and reflexes, as some of the levels you went through called for split-second timing, and at least with the original Laserdisc machines, you couldn't spam the controls to get the correct move in. There has been a Dragon's Lair machine at the arcade in Brighton for a very long time now, even though it and the Space Ace machine next to it are run-off computers which are much more reliable than the old Laserdisc players which were incredibly fragile, as I said. Um, the funny part was, I think the machine at Spanky's back in the day was only down once in the two years plus the, the machine was on the floor. I guess the owners got a good one. At any rate, one of my plans is to print up a walkthrough for this in Space Ace for the customers to read and possibly play because I think most customers who didn't play them back in the day are a little bit intimidated by these games. In the end, this game was historic because it represented another fundamental shift in what was possible going into the mid-80s, even though the subsequent crash was imminent. 
and that's Dragon Slayer. <laughs> in a nutshell, uh, what are your experiences with this game? Uh, did you like it? Did you hate it? Did you beat it? Did you give up on it before you could beat it? What's your story? Tell me. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com Okay, with that out of the way, let's go on to our final segment of the show, and that is The Silver Ball. Silver Ball, the machine Bride of Pinbot. <laughs> my favorite pinball machine of all time, but you know, I'll get into my gushing about it later. <laughs> uh, let's go back to uh, Wikipedia real quick. Okay, the machine Bride of Pinbot styled uh, the, <laughs> the machine Bride of Pinbot. Yeah, is a 1991 pinball game designed by Python. Angelo and John Trudeau, also known as Dr. Flash, and released by Williams, is the second game in the Pinbot series and is the last game produced by Williams to use a segmented score display rather than a dot matrix screen. It is also one of the few pinball games produced that uses a variable brightness segmented display. <laughs> I didn't know that. Okay, uh, let's move quickly to the gameplay. The primary plot of the machine revolves around the eponymous female robot, also known as the machine, that makes up the majority of the playfield. The robot begins the game in a semi-completed state, requiring the player to activate her voice circuits and her eyes that cause her to metamorphose into a human female. Each of these events occurs as the player makes shots up the left ramp to lock balls. A two-ball multi-ball mode begins once the player locks two balls as her eyes, enabling her to see. Uh, during multi-ball, locking the two balls again begins her metamorphosis into a fully human woman. The machine reverts to an incomplete robot when the multi-ball ends. The left ramp feeds into two areas, a pachinko-style raised playfield similar to the one in Pinbot, which can drop the ball either back onto the main playfield or into the shooter lane an enclosed area containing the, a rotating box with the machine's various facial, facial states on each side. The box contains raised guides and holes depending on which face is showing. Beside the left ramp is a saucer containing the small wheel. In a single ball mode, shooting the saucer awards a random small wheel award, which includes lighting a time jackpot. During multi-ball and after the metamorphosis, the player must lock both balls to spin the big wheel, which awards larger random prizes including lighting the center ramp, called the heartbeat ramp, on a timed interval for a shot worth 1 billion points. Scoring this shot at least once causes the player's score to be recorded in a special billionaire's club high score list separated uh, from the main high score table. Once her voice circuits are activated, the machine provides spoken feedback to the player on his or her shots. The machine's voice is provided by Chicago-based singer Stephanie Rogers. Due to the sexual overtones of some of her speech, the game includes a modesty setting that prevents some clips from being played. 
the original synthetic voice of Pinbot is also featured in the game. And that is from Barry uh, Orsler, who I think was also part of the... Uh, who was also part of the... Uh, the original Pinbot machine, which we also have at the arcade, by the way. Uh, let's see. And also the legacy real quick. The machine Bride of Pinbot was followed by a sequel, Jackbot, in 1995. The machine was available in the Pinball Arcade for any platform until June 30th, 2018, along with Pinbot and Jackbot when the WMS, WMS license expired. It has also been recreated unofficially for Virtual Pinball and Visual Pinball, and that's true because I have it for both both programs. <laughs> okay. And, okay, that's all they have on Wikipedia, so let's move right to my uh, experiences with it. This is my favorite pin of them all, as I've said. I remember when I found this table at a local video store in 1991, and I was hooked on, on it from the moment I first dropped the quarter into it. I would play it constantly to the point that the manager of the store, who also loved it, would play against me whenever I came in, and the store wasn't too busy. We had high score battles all the time, which were heightened because there was a little one-way gate that was removed from the play field, and when you shot the ball back up the right lane where the jet bumpers were, they could force the ball back down the launch lane, which would score points and advance the launch lane multiplier. This radically changed how you played the game because that one little alteration became the primary way you scored points, rather than advancing the game by shooting the left ramp seven times and then hitting the center heart ramp shot. Out of all the times I played this machine, I only got the hard shot once, and I simply couldn't hit it because I was physically worn out. If I remember correctly, I think I played like 10 to 15 games of Bride of Pinbot at the video store, and I was not, I just wasn't having any luck until I played this one game, and I got so hyped up, but I was also so physically tired that I couldn't just get the timing down to hit the heart shot, which would have scored me a billion points and got me on the Billionaires Club, which nobody had done to that point. Uh, I play this machine, I used to play this machine all the time before my shift at the arcade in Brighton, even though it needs some leveling because the heart shot is way too difficult. This was, in my opinion, the best pin from the 90s and possibly the entire era. And that's how I feel about it. And that's the machine, Bride of Pinbot. If you've heard, if you played this machine, and how you, let me know how you feel about it. You like it, you hate it, whatever it is. Tell me. Arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Okay, and that's it for episode 70. So let's see. Looking, ho looking forward to episode 71. I have another arcade rundown to do. I'm going to do our experience for Space Ace. And what's the other thing? I think, yeah, and I have an on-the-road segment as well. So, hopefully I can get this out by uh, by Christmas time or so, or so forth, and I'll probably end up uh, recording episode 71 by, uh, probably by uh, right around New Year's, New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. We'll see. But that's what I'm going to do. So, all right, you guys, this is Brian. You guys have fun out there, wherever you may be, find your games, play them, enjoy them, uh, be safe, and be smart out there. We ain't done with COVID, and you probably never will, but hey, just be careful out there. I'll see you guys next time. Au revoir.